I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. The Battle of Austerlitz was fought on the 2nd of December 1805, just a couple of months after the Battle of Trafalgar. One would be Britain's greatest naval victory of the early 19th century. The other was probably Napoleon's single greatest victory on land. The two of them were coming so close to each other helped to set the scene for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars that would last for an almost uninterrupted 10 years right up to the the final volley of the Battle of Waterloo. The Battle of Austerlitz probably shows Napoleon at the peak of his powers, his use of deception, his determination drive, his ability to be everywhere on the battlefield, to provide on-hand leadership at the moment of crisis. It's a battle that very much supports his claim to be one of the great military geniuses of all time. In this episode of Dancer's History, we have got James Rogers. He's on our sibling podcast, Warfare. He's talked to Andrew Roberts about the Battle of Arslitz. It's performed so well on that feed, we thought we'd bring it over here and give it an airing. Andrew Roberts has been on this podcast many times before. He is obviously one of Britain's best-selling historians, Churchill expert, just written his biography of George III, which we talked about on this podcast, and he's written about Napoleon in the past as well. Great to hear his opinion about Napoleon's greatest triumph. If you wish to watch a documentary about the Battle of Austerlitz, I've been there. Oh, yes, I have. I've been there in the early days of history. We shot a documentary on the field in early December. It's freezing cold. We didn't have any food. We were staggering around that place like a disorientated Russian infantry unit on the Pratson Heights. But unlike them, we emerged victorious. So please go and check it out on History Hit TV. It's our digital history channel. It's like Netflix for history. Lots of documentaries on there. All these podcasts without the ads. You're going to love it. Just go to historyhit.tv. More people signing up all the time. And I should mention, everyone, thank you very much from the Lymington Museum. We did raise the money. Thanks to you. We raised the thousands of pounds required to keep that wonderful hoard of Iron Age coins in Lymington, where it was both hidden away 2,000 years ago and where it was recently discovered by the metal detectorists, who very properly reported the coin hoard the authority. So that will now remain forever protected, exhibited, curated at the local Lymington Museum. I'm very proud of history. Thank you to all of you for doing that and those of you who donated. Thank you very much indeed. But before you go and subscribe to History Hit TV, it's Andrew Roberts and James talking about Austerlitz. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks very much indeed, James. That's very kind of you. I'm in the middle of a six-week 
um, tour of the United States uh, and North America plugging my biography of King George III at the moment. So it's great to have an opportunity to talk to you. Ah, where are you talking to us from today on this tour of America? I'm in Mexico today. Next week will be California. The week after that, New York. I feel very sorry for you. That sounds like you're having a terrible time. Well, it's very sunny, I have to admit. (laughs) As as we're all sitting in Europe freezing, you'll be very pleased to know there is most definitely a cold snap that's turned. I've seen the first frost of the year this morning, so uh, we all wish we were in Mexico. Well, it's a good thing that we're talking about Austerlitz, actually, because the weather was quite important as far as that was concerned. It was a very... um, cold night before Austerlitz, and I'm sure we'll get on to the weather later on. I did have a question about the weather, actually, because, of course, we are approaching this anniversary of the Battle of Austerlitz, which took place on December 2nd, 1805. Would you say that this is one of Napoleon's greatest victories? It was the greatest victory of um, of Napoleon's in an entire career that spanned some 60 battles. I think it's generally recognised by most historians to have been the, um, the absolute uh, ne plus ultra of battles for him. The Battle of Austerlitz is the most splendid of all I have fought. I have fought 30 battles of the same sort, but none in which the victory was so decisive and so little in doubt. The infantry of the guard was not sent into action. The men were weeping with rage. Tonight, I am lying in a bed in the beautiful castle of Count Cornitz and I have changed my shirt, which I hadn't done for a week past. I shall get two or three hours sleep. The Emperor of Germany sent Prince Liechtenstein to me this morning to ask for an interview. We may possibly get peace before long. Well, set this up historically for us. How did Napoleon get to this point politically, where he was outnumbered and about to engage his 68,000 troops or so, against almost 90,000 Russians and Austrians. Politically, how did he get to this point? Well, he'd been crowned emperor exactly a year before, on the 2nd of December 1804. And the British government, under William Pitt the Younger, financed a massive third coalition against him, which was going to be paid for by Britain, but the uh, lion's share of the armies were going to be provided by Austria and Russia. And um, by the August of um, 1805, it became clear that he had to do something about this. The, his ally, Bavaria had been invaded that August, on the 13th of August, so he had to respond. He had all his army, majority of the Grande Armée, in and around Boulogne and on the Channel Coast, up and down the Channel Coast, uh, threatening an invasion of Britain. So he had to act incredibly quickly and turn them all round and get them marching 600 miles to the Danube to take on the Austrian and Russian army that uh, were invading Bavaria. Okay, so this is a a pretty key pivotal moment. He's got a, a long march on the go and he's got to meet, well, it's called the also called the Battle of the Three Emperors, isn't it? Because we know that Napoleon is one of these, but he's got to go and meet the other two. Napoleon, of course, this pivoting, splitting, tactical whiz with a, a military background at least. 
But who are the other two that he's facing? Well, he's got Tsar Alexander uh, I of Russia, and he's also got the um, Emperor Kaiser, as it's known, Francis of Austria. So these um, these three emperors do turn up on the uh, on the battlefield, but even before the battle, in fact, long before the battle, Napoleon has pulled off an extraordinary coup in managing through the use of the corps system to get his army six hundred miles to the to the Danube anyway, along all the roads that he mapped out um, to according to dates that he set out right at the beginning of the uh, campaign, on the news that Bavaria had been invaded, in fact. And it was one of the most extraordinary campaigns as far as he was concerned because of this incredibly good staff work by him, but also by his chief of staff, Alexandre Berthier. And this core system is an extraordinary system which entirely revolutionises warfare. In fact, his greatest contribution to the history of warfare was his use of the core system, which continues really. First of all, it was adopted by all the other armies, in Europe by 1812, and then it um, stays in existence until 1945. And what it consists of, essentially, is to split his army up into mini-armies, a series of corps which had their own artillery, cavalry and infantry, but also their own staff work, their own intelligence, their own victualling departments, their own medical departments, and so on. And so they could act as mini-armies, And as many armies, they could engage the enemy. They were all within one day's march of one another. So one could engage the enemy as the others uh, started to envelop the enemy. And this is what happened at the beginning of the Austerlitz campaign at the Bavarian city of Ulm, which had been captured by the Austrians. And the, the General Mack, who was in charge of the Austrians in Ulm, was forced to surrender with some 30,000 of his um men because you've been completely surrounded. And the question is, of course, why weren't the Russians closer? Uh, Was it just bad staff work? Or, as some historians have suggested, was it the 11-day gap between the Julian and the Gregorian calendars, which meant that the Russians actually were 11 days behind where they should be? It's an intriguing um, uh, question. So was it Napoleon's speed, the speed of his cause, which meant that he was able to catch the enemy perhaps a little bit quicker than they thought they'd be caught. An awful lot quicker, yes. And uh, he had 170,000 troops at this stage bearing down on Ulm. And of course, some of his greatest commanders were the core commanders, people like Bernadotte and Marmont, Murat, Ney, uh, Davou, Lan. These were the uh, Marshal Soult these were the marshals who uh, had only just been made marshals only only um, a few months earlier, and uh, they were keen to prove themselves. And across a 200-mile battlefront, they attacked and really routed the initial Austrian force at uh, Ulm. It is an, an incredible victory, but, but take us down into the strategic and tactical nitty-gritty. This is the History Hit Warfare podcast. These are the things that we want to know about. We want to know about terrain, tactics, territory, and how this leads through to victory. So, I don't know, where should we start? Should we start with the weather? Because you mentioned it from the very top. How does the weather start to affect preparations for this battle and how the battle plays out? 
Well, the weather is cold. The lakes, there are two lakes in front of the emperor's headquarters, by the emperor, I mean uh, Napoleon's headquarters, on the Zoltan, which is his sort of raised hillock that he is watching the battle from. And um, there are a couple of um, places where there are some important skirmishes going on, but otherwise, which he can't see, but otherwise he can see pretty much everything, insofar as anyone can see anything, because it was a very misty day. And the sun of Austerlitz, as it's famously referred to, is a key factor, because the sun comes up at about uh, nine o'clock in the morning and burns off all of the mist And it's this mist that has prevented the Austrians and Russians from spotting where Napoleon has placed his troops. And he's placed them in a way, especially under Marshal Soult, where they can capture this high ground, a plateau called the Pratzen Heights, which are pretty much in the middle of the battlefield. And he's very good, Napoleon, in uh, in the course of this campaign at... Uh, tricking the enemy. He uses various ruses to try to make the enemy not appreciate where he is, but also to overestimate themselves and to um, consider that Napoleon is is weak and, um, and pulling back. Whereas in fact, that's exactly what he wanted to do. He wanted to try to encourage them to take as many troops off the Prats and Heights as possible, thereby weakening the centre. And there are lots of Napoleonic battlefields where he tries enveloping movements, he tries to attack on the right or the left flank. But in Austerlitz, it's a central thrust through the centre at Pratzen, which um, establishes his victory. It's interesting because um, the soldiers said up until the Battle of Austerlitz, and of course after Ulmud fallen, they'd taken Vienna and then they'd, uh, then they'd marched off into Bohemia. And they said that the emperor uh, no longer needs our bayonet, the bayonets, he just needs our legs, because it was all a war of manoeuvre until the moment of Austerlitz. But on the 2nd of December 1805, he definitely needed their bayonets. So Napoleon manages to move his troops up the plateau at Pratzen, or does he manage to lull some of them down into a trap first? It's both pretty much at the same time. By withdrawing on his left flank, he encouraged the coalition armies to come down off the Pratzen Heights to uh, seemingly take advantage of this weakness. And on his right flank, he's fighting various skirmishes in villages that go backwards and forwards during the day and stay. Uh, and so, so nothing really going on on his right flank. And then comes the moment when the mists burnt off and suddenly some 16,000 of Soult's division come uh, punching through the centre. Now, as you mentioned, you're right, the numbers are um, in the favour of the Austrians and Russians. They've got about 69,500 infantry, about 16,000 cavalry and um, 237 guns, whereas Napoleon only has 50,000 infantry and uh, roughly the same amount of cavalry, 15,000. He's got a few more guns, uh, 282, but he uses them extremely well, as I'm sure we'll come on to later on in the, uh, later on in the talk. You listen to Dan Snow's History Hit. James is talking to Andrew Roberts about Austerlitz. More coming up. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. 
This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How long does this this battle last in total, first of all? It's the whole day. It, um, it's, uh, there's the original uh, fighting shortly after dawn on the uh, right flank, but then it's not, as, as I say, until about 10 o'clock in the morning, so after the mist has cleared, that Salt attacks in the, um, in the centre. And then it goes on. It, it's, it's actually not one of the longest of the um, Napoleonic No, battles. I was going to say, yeah. Um, it's, it's also, it's only fought across about a seven mile wide front. But the point is that, of course, days are very short in December. So you have the sun coming up all right, but it also goes down very early. And the other major point is that the success of the French in the centre means that um, the Russian and Austrians are broken and they quit the field. When they turn around and and flee, they have to do, quite a few of them at least, have to do so across the frozen lakes. And Napoleon ordered his artillery batteries to fire at the ice of the lakes. And um, according to some accounts, you know, entire um, squadrons of cavalry and cannon, uh, horse artillery and so on, um, goes crashing through the ice to destruction. When the lakes were recently, I say recently, over 10 years ago now, but nonetheless recently in historical terms, they were um, dredged. Actually, they found relatively little, relatively few bits of the sort of paraphernalia that you'd expect if it had been a major aspect of the uh, of the battle. But it was true that he did fire and smash the ice as they were re- retreating. Well done, soldiers. In the Battle of Austerlitz, you have accomplished all I expected of your valour. You have crowned your eagles with immortal glory. An army of a 100,000 men, commanded by the emperors of Russia and of Austria, has been dispersed or captured in less than four hours. What escaped your arms was drowned in the lakes. Forty flags, the standards of the Russian Imperial Guard, 120 guns, 20 generals and more than 30,000 prisoners are the result of this eternally glorious battle. What probably caused a lot more pain for the Austrians was the fact that although they had um, metal cuirasses at the front of their cavalrymen's protection, they didn't have any on the back. And so if you're chased by a lancer, you're in um, extreme danger by not having a a back cuirass in the way that the French had both um, front and back cuirasses. It's hard to prepare for retreat, isn't it? Yes, nobody likes to do that. And, um, and yet, actually, retreat is, again and again, so important because that's how you counterattack. Uh, I remember my, my uh, Don at um, Cambridge, my, in my first uh, tutorial there, said, Professor Norman Stone, I'd said something that uh, in history that had happened was inevitable. And he said, there's nothing inevitable in history. Never use the word inevitable in history, except for German counterattack. And that's so totally true, true of the First World War, true of the Second World War. And you can only counterattack if you have retreated. So the retreat is, and this is an essential part of warfare. I'm writing a book, I'm just publicising a book that I've written about the um, 
uh, King George III, and the retreat of um, Washington in the initial stages, his Fabian strategy of um, of retreating and only fighting battles when he was absolutely uh, certain, or he thought he was certain of winning them, was the obvious sensible thing to do in the opening stages of a revolutionary war with an untrained continental army. So, so yes, you've got to be able to retreat properly. And Napoleon knew that as well. He's, he was involved in several retreats before the famous retreat from Moscow. Something that I believe Allenbrook planned and trained for as well was, was retreat. Yes, I know. It's, a, it's, it's almost as important an, a, um, a part of the military repertoire as advance. If it's done properly, it can be uh, a devastating uh, manoeuvre. And also, you know, you see a lot of, of what are essentially ret- retreats by closing up lines and pockets and salients uh, in both the First World War and the, um, and the Second World War. You know, they look like retreats, but in fact, they're strengthening the line by making it more uh, straight. So I could talk about retreats all day. We could do a whole other podcast about the importance of retreat. But we've got to the point where Marshal Nicholas Salt has taken 20,000 infantry up the slopes. We've got a point where the battle is perhaps, you could say, largely won. And then you're talking about the artillery, the artillery that's used to smash up the ice and to, to take the ground beneath, well, I suppose it's it's water, frozen water, from beneath <laughs> the troops. Now... Is that the only way in which the artillery is used to ensure victory here? No, no. It uh, it breaks up the major lines of Austrian and uh, Russian attackers. I mean, he was a gunner. He understood artillery probably better than any of the other two arms of his army. And uh, he knew when to use canister and grape shot and when to use shot and, uh, and where to position the guns. Um, he was particularly good at making sure that they had arcs of fire, that where they could be at their most devastating. You also, of course, one of the things that he used to do in um, most of his battles, and often, again, to devastating effect, was to hold back the Imperial Guard. His crack troops, the Imperial Guard, were held back at Austerlitz until such time as he could see where there was a moment of breakthrough. And then he would pour them in, which he did in Austerlitz, to enormous effect. Partly this was uh, morale because they had never been defeated and um, they knew that, but so did their opponents. And partly this was just their extreme um, uh, usefulness and their, and their capacity. They were, um, they were nicknamed the Immortals, which they liked because it sounded as though they would never die. But also some other elements in the army called them the Immortals because he used them so rarely. Um, and uh, and instead put the put the regular soldiers in the um, in the front line. So there was a kind of um, slight ambiguity about that uh, nickname. Easy to be immortal when you rarely engage in battle, isn't it? That was that was certainly the joke that was made against them. Yes. <laughs> so we can say that this is a a resounding victory for Napoleon, but but not one without great casualties. How does Napoleon react to the wounded? Very distressed all the way through his career that he feels this. He goes out of his way to make sure that Baron Larry and the uh, the medical teams get everything they need. He knows how important uh, good treatment of the wounded or as good treatment as possible in the context of early 19th century uh, warfare, how good that is and how important that is for the morale of the troops. I've never uh, subscribed to this theory that he was just a monster who didn't care about his troops. He did. But the trouble is that with the exigencies of 
basically the horrors of Napoleonic uh, warfare with uh, regard to the edged weaponry and the lead musket balls and what a great shot could actually do to uh, people compared to the really very still basic uh, medical abilities that the doctors had and, uh, and practices that they used and drugs that they were able to use. Basically, it was brandy meant that if you were wounded in the French Revolutionary or Napoleonic Wars, it was extremely bad news for you, especially if gangrene got in, which it did, you know, even up to the marshalette. Um, there are plenty of marshals who, who died of that. And, and how do we know this about Napoleon? How do we know about his feelings at this time? Are these things he's writing back in his, his letters to the Empress? What, where do we get this information from? Yeah, he's constantly writing to the Empress, but then there are also enormous numbers of people who are around him, who are with him, who see him cry at the death of Bercier, for example, who notice the way that he goes out of his way to make sure that the drummer boys are warm and sitting by the campfire, who uh, make sure that the sentries are given their um, glasses of wine before the marshals get them and so on. You know, it's basic leadership stuff. And he was very good at all of that. You know, the sort of just the sheer leadership uh, lessons that he personified were ones that military leaders have, have followed ever since, really. I mean, he, he was, one of the battles before Ulm, they needed to capture some heights in order to, to take Ulm. And he took off his own cloak to a wounded soldier and, and put it over him and said, if you bring me back this cloak after the battle, I will recognise you and I will give you the Légion d'honneur and a, um, a pension because you deserve it so much, because he'd actually seen him fight in the battle. And that's the kind of leadership that really does electrify, not just obviously the man who's uh, fighting, but everybody else around who, who sort of knows that the emperor is sort of watching them. And that um, kind of leadership is sort of money can't buy type of leadership. Memoirs of the Duke de Rivigo. The emperor came back in the evening along the whole line where the different regiments of the army had fought. It was already dark. He had recommended silence to all who accompanied him, that he might hear the cries of the wounded. He immediately went to the spot where they were, alighted himself, and ordered a glass of brandy to be given them from the canteen which always followed him. I was with him the whole of that night, during which he remained very late on the field of battle. The squadron of his escort passed the whole night upon it in taking the cloaks from the Russian dead for the purpose of covering the wounded with them. He himself ordered a large fire to be kindled near each of them, sent about for a muster master, and did not retire till he had arrived, and, having left him a picket of his own escort, he enjoined him not to quit these wounded till they were all in the hospital. These brave men loaded him with blessings, which found the way to his heart much better than all the flatteries of courtiers. It was thus that he won the affection of his soldiers, who knew that when they suffered... It was not his fault, and therefore they never spared themselves in his service. So tell us, how does Austerlitz end in terms of political ramifications? What does this mean for Napoleon and his conquest? And how does Francis I of Austria try to bring this to an end politically? Well, he comes immediately after the defeat, either the day after or two days after, I forget, to make peace. And it is a, it's a swinging peace on uh, Austria. It costs Austria land. Once the Austrians 
are clearly making peace, then the Russians can't continue on. The Prussians didn't get involved until it was too late. And so they were the next for the chop, the next year in the Jena campaign in 1806. But um, no, it was a uh, it was a moment that the crushing of the Third Coalition was, you know, in many ways, Napoleon's finest hour. And you can see that when you go to Paris, if you go to the Louvre, the Petit Carousel has him and the figures of victory on this sort of small Arc de Triomphe, which uh, has the story of the Third Coalition and some fantastic um, base relief marble figures that show the great moments in the um, campaign. And so it's, it's sort of there forevermore to be, uh, to be glorified in the Napoleonic um, story. But he doesn't learn the lesson of the campaign, which is obviously how important it is to make peace afterwards. And there are, um, by 1813, he tries but fails to make peace because the uh, Austrians and others, but particularly the Austrians under Metternich, have worked out that the only way to defeat him ultimately is to um, is to wear him down and refuse peace. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss Napoleon's greatest victory. Tell us, where can people read more about this battle about Napoleon? Well, it's chapter 16 of my biography, Napoleon the Great, uh, which is, of course, the first place that I would encourage anybody to uh, to read about it. It's quite an exciting chapter. I, Knowing that I was coming on this show, I reread it recently. And I must say, it's a, it's a real page turner, even if I say so myself. If you want a, a much more um, detailed blow-by-blow account, then you can always go to David Chung. David, although that book was written in the 1960s, it's called The Campaigns of Napoleon, and it's a fabulous book. If you want something a bit more um, bite-sized, then there are any number of books about, uh, about Napoleon and indeed about Astolet. Wonderful. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Enjoy Mexico, and we look forward to welcoming you on again soon. Thank you very much indeed, James. I've much enjoyed it. If you're enjoying this podcast and you're looking for more fascinating warfare content, then go and subscribe to our Warfare Wednesdays newsletter. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out more. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Well, that, folks, was an episode of Warfare with Dr. James Rogers. We've extended the remit of warfare to First and Second World War, but also the great wars of the 18th and 19th centuries. So I hope there'll be something in the warfare feed for you all to enjoy. If you want to subscribe to warfare, just head over to wherever you get your podcasts, search warfare, and feel free to give it a rating and a review as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Snow at checkout.